Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And thank you for joining us in this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're going to have a bit of fun today. We're going to be speaking with Tony Uphoff, who is president and CEO of Thomas, formerly known as Thomas Net, formerly known as the Thomas Register. They've come a long way since they were just the big green books that sit in the buyer's office of many, many manufacturers because they contain, gosh, Tony will have to tell us, Lou, the number of how many suppliers are in all of those books, 28 or 30 volumes over the years. Well, I, I have a complaint to make. You to- stole my line. I wanted to bring up about the green books. I'm the <laughs> one who keeps reminding Thomas about the green books. I'm not sure. Tony, do you even remember the green books? Well, you know what, Dad? As you know, Lou and Tim, first off, Happy New Year. Great to be on with you both and uh, appreciate you. You, uh, you having us on the show. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm the rookie at Thomas. This is our 122nd year in business, and I've been on board for three years, but I have a, a deep appreciation and understanding of the history. And as we've talked before, those green books um, really established the company as the predominant source for product sourcing and supplier selection. And We've been very fortunate, and I might argue, Lou and Tim, one of the few companies that's ever really made a successful transition of that level of um, dominant position in print into an online platform. And uh, hasn't always been easy, but we're, we're very fortunate. Today, uh, more people use thomasnet.com in 48 hours than used those big green books over the course of a full year. Is that right? That's amazing. So really remarkable. Shows you the power of the Internet, too, right? Oh, absolutely. We were waiting for Thomas to come along to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, it's, it's funny, and it, not to get too geeked out about our, our history, but we were one of the very first companies commercially online back in the 90s, and the company made a pretty bold decision in 2005 to cease producing print because the belief – from the, the patriarchs of the company was that we would not um, own the future the way we owned the past if we didn't make that transition. And so if the metaphor of burning the boats on the shore means anything, the company did that. And it, and it really took a tremendous amount of vision and forethought and, frankly, uh, some guts to make that decision when they did it. Well, that's true. That really is true. And I, I as you know, I've been with Thomas as a client uh, since the 70s. So, and visiting my clients, as Tom, as Tim put it, everybody had the green books. And if I'm you not got, mistaken, there was something closer to 35 plus volumes. You know, I should know that, Lou. I don't remember what it, what the number when you include regional and national and all the different permutations. I, I think you're probably right. And I'll tell you what's absolutely fascinating about our business today. Of our active registered users, yeah, so in any given month, you know, we have about 1.6, 1.7 million sessions on thomasnet.com. Uh, close to 50% of those now are from millennial managers. And the three of us have talked before about this unique time in history of the demographic stretch 
from the marketplace that we're involved in, where you've got millennials that are very active and you've got baby boomers that are still very active in, in the in the marketplace. So we have a good 50% at least of our users that if I said the big green books, they would have no idea what the heck I'm talking about, <laughs> right? You know, they know us as thomasnet.com and another 50% that would, oh yeah, I remember the big green books, you know, so it, it's, it's an interesting and, and frankly, very positive element of our history and our branding. I would have never taken the green books down, but that's only me. So, and I know you waited for me to say that because I say it to you every time we get together. So I didn't want to disappoint you. Lou, is so, this the part that you're going to edit out later? No. <laughs> no, no, it's, this is it. It's permanent. Uh, I know, it's I permanent. know. I'm kidding you. I'm kidding you. <laughs> okay, so uh, here we are. We're at the beginning of uh, 2020. Uh uh, we're we're still in uh, January, just to pinpoint exactly where we are in 2020. What's going on at uh, Thomas? What are you what are you doing? Well, what do you see? Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I'm going to start if I can, Lou. Maybe tee up a couple of very big picture kind of things that we see, and then sure. we can kind of narrow it down. <clears throat> Based on the trends that we follow, and we, we're, we're hugely fortunate in that the, the magic of the thomasnet.com platform creates a, a really remarkable window into the industrial economy based on every two seconds somebody evaluating a product or a supplier on the platform. As we do that, we start to see some trends emerging, and we think you're going to see one big thing happen in 2020 that we've been talking about for years, close to a decade now. We believe that 2020 will be the year that Industry 4.0 becomes a reality. And what I mean by that is all of the buzz and hype about Industry 4.0, which fundamentally, I, you know, my description of this would be digital technologies combined with traditional industrial products and services. We've seen, you know, steps towards that. We believe we're starting to see an acceleration of that. And we think there's a few reasons why, but we see that through the sourcing on the platform around advanced manufacturing technology of all stripes, but also down into component level things around sensors and other things that we think are connected into this idea of industry 4.0. So we think that's probably going to be one of the big accelerations that we're going to see of this phenomenon in 2020. Well, I think that we've been seeing the, the beginning of that, uh, you know, over the last year or so. But uh, there's, you're right, there's so much more coming down the line. Uh, do you have anything specific that you're seeing from any of your, your giant uh, uh, advertisers? Yeah, a few things I would know here, Lou. I think one is <clears throat> if, if you talk to some of the larger companies in, in the marketplace, right, you talk to, you know, an ABB, just to throw a name out there as an example, but there's many, many others. What they're starting to see now is that the, the IIoT, right, the Industrial right. Internet of Things, is now got enough infrastructure. And when you look at the emergence of universal 5G, that's been the trigger point. So the example I, I give to people oftentimes is if you go back and you remember, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, right, the idea of streaming, 
as a way that we'd watch filmed entertainment was really kind of a glimmer in the eye of some uber geeks. It really was not mainstream at all. Many, many people looked at it. And to give you a sense of reference, in the year 2005, the DVD sales of movies was a $22 billion a year business. So these are consumers like you and me buying a movie that we could play on our DVD player at home. Well, what happened that, you know, it wasn't that streaming was a new idea. It was around then. The enabling infrastructure, particularly the bandwidth, finally opened up. And boy, now look, everybody's in streaming. I mean, it's revolutionizing. It's cutting the cables. It's doing all kinds of things. I would use this exact moment in time to describe the industrial Internet of Things and 5G. That's going to, as, as you two know well, that's going to open up so much opportunity. So the reason I'm kind of calling this shot in 2020 is this acceleration, Lou and Tim, is I think the, the, the mainstreaming, if you will, or the next level for 5G, universal 5G. So we're starting to see that from some of our, our larger companies that are starting to invest uh, you know, time and energy around that. Um, and, and I think then there's a whole series of you know, arguably related technologies that fit in here. And so you're, you're seeing, you know, an acceleration of interest around all kinds of fascinating areas. You know, the use of, um, you know, uh, artificial reality and virtual reality on the factory floor, all kinds of things that companies are starting to invest or explore that we think are signaling we're going to start to move to a, a, a bit of a different era here. Do you think that, uh, you know, the smaller not necessarily ma and pa, but the, the smaller manufacturing company who's dealing with uh, their clients who may be larger uh, and or much larger uh, companies, are they going to be negatively impacted because they might not have kept up or it's too expensive for them to uh, buy into the uh, uh, industry 4.0? I think it's a great question, Lou, and, and here's what we're hearing from some, you know, if I go to the other end of the spectrum, right, you know, a, a smaller company, let's, let's say it's a custom manufacturer, right? Right. If not, if not the top thing we hear, number one or two oftentimes is they're, they're struggling to keep up with the advances in technology. You know, how, right. how do you just wrap your head around some of this, let alone determine where do I start to make some investments? And as, as the two of you know, we've really taken that on and started to do a lot more actionable content on thomasnet.com to try to help some of these smaller manufacturers wrestle these issues to the ground and how to start thinking about these new technologies and starting to evaluate them and understand where, you know, where and, and perhaps when you might want to start thinking about investing in some of these technologies. Second thing we hear a lot from particularly the smaller companies, and this is, again, something the three of us have talked about before, is it's not just the automation of your factory floor that's taking place in the industrial markets. You know, most companies, even smaller companies, as, as you two know, they actually have kept pace with technology. You know, and they, they're, they're reasonably good at, you know, advances in some of these areas, maybe not bleeding edge, but certainly not trailing. The digital transformation of the industrial sales and marketing process is causing a huge challenge for a lot of these companies. We were recently asked by Congressman Tom Reed of New York's 23rd District. He sits on Ways and Means and also head chairs the Manufacturing Caucus to provide a webinar for his constituencies on the simple steps of making your website um, a growth engine for your small manufacturing company today. 
And so we had close to 100, you know, small manufacturers in, uh, in upper uh, uh, New York uh, State that were logging on to kind of hear the best practices around that. And I use as an example that I, I think that's not that uncommon. And so I think those two things, how do you stay up to speed as a small manufacturer on fundamental technology that, that's creating opportunity in and around your business, but also your buyer, right? Your supply chain, your partners are going online now. So how do you deal with that? And, and these aren't insurmountable. And, and by the way, they're not massive investments here, but I, we do hear from the smaller companies there's a bit of a talent gap in these areas as well, you know, the skills gap that we've talked about. But these are these are challenging things for small companies. Well, another problem uh, for the smaller company is that, uh, you know, they're having difficulty enough in uh, filling the uh, the skill gap that they have where, you know, the retirees are leaving and so on, that they can't get uh, trained well enough people to work for them. They can't easily get people to come in and create their digital marketing department either, because that's that's now another, you know, twenty five, thirty, forty thousand, even on the low end, having somebody come in and handle all that for them. Yeah, Lou. Look, th- these are if you look at the skills shortage that faces our industry here, it it, it is. It is a massive problem. I mean, I, I would argue it's the biggest problem the industry faces. And, and isn't it the double-edged sword, right, which that, that funny nature of U.S. manufacturing has been and continues to be competitive on the global stage. There's lots of job opportunities. There is growth in the marketplace. There, there's all the positives, but it's exacerbating this issue. And, you know, we've, the three of us have talked before. I, I think we are being, as an industry, um, and, and not to veer off into regulatory issues, I, I think we've wildly underthought this and underprepared for it. You know, you don't have to be a, a, a professional demographer to have seen, gee, you got a lot of people that started these businesses that are getting close to retirement, right? This, this, this didn't just sneak <laughs> up on us, you know. And, uh, and I, I do think um, one of the things that we've been really focused on is – trying to shine a light on um, examples of either companies or nonprofits or groups that are trying to tackle this skill shortage from the ground up, if you will. And so for, I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, the Wallingford uh, public school system in, in Connecticut, Wallingford, Connecticut, and some of the work that Dr. Salmenzo has done there of getting um, dozens of manufacturing businesses directly involved in the strategic planning of the public school system. And what it's created is this remarkable alliance between local industry and the school district. And it's opened the eyes of parents and very young people, grade school, about careers in these, uh, in these environments. And it's been around long enough now where we're starting to see young people step into internships and apprenticeships and full-time roles. But, you know, that's one small example. We're, we're really interested in ways that some of these things could be replicated around the country because it, it's no need to tell the two of you. It's a huge issue. You and I spoke uh, last week, and uh, we talked about skill gaps and so on. And you made a comment to me about, you know, everybody talks about skill gaps. But 
nobody's really talking about how to how to fix it. Uh, and the only thing that I hear, and the story you just gave is a good example of it, that there's little snippets of fixing it. Uh, and they're all over the country, but there's no major national program that has been thought up or put together or uh, suggested by the government, our U.S. government. Uh, they are doing it at state level and county level. But if we don't, and, and I don't know if you know this number right now, we're about 700,000 people short in manufacturing and Correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but didn't they say that in 10 years, if nothing major happens, it's going to be 10 million? Yeah, it's going to just continue to grow, uh, and, and we're looking at that whole issue in our uh, easing called Manufacturing Outlook. And the good news, I guess, for the millennials and those that follow is that there will be lots of job openings in manufacturing. I don't know what the service sector will look like, but they won't have a problem going – Gee, who do I want to be when I grow up? How am I going to find a job? I'm sitting in mom's basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not going to happen. That's not yeah, going to happen. Yeah, Lou, it's but, interesting. I think – I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. Go ahead. No, no, that's all right. Go ahead. Well, it, I, I, I think you're on to something, right? So as usual, I, I, you know, it, I think as we – as we advocate, as we shine lights on this, as we, we, we continue to dialogue and discuss this, I, I, I'm optimistic that programs that might be at a city level could become a state level, which could become a federal level at some point in time. I don't, <clears throat> I don't feel that my time's best used by advocating or waiting is probably best used by demonstrating what's working and, and suggesting that that could be replicated elsewhere. But I think you're connecting it to another issue. And I really believe that 2020 will be the year we're going to look back on that North American U.S. manufacturing was redefined. And what I mean by that is you're touching, Lou, to a certain extent on the misperceptions of manufacturing as an industry and a career and a vocation. And I think this is starting to shift, maybe more than we realize. So as you both know, we do an annual survey that's a random sample of U.S. Uh, population about perceptions of uh, manufacturing in the United States. We've done it two years now, but even in just the two-year sample, we can start to see a bit of a shift here. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. I think, you know, it's manufacturing is more in the news, sometimes inappropriately, sometimes appropriately. But also take a look at who our rock stars are these days. Who's Elon Musk? He's a manufacturer. Who's right. Tim Cook? He's a manufacturer, right? Who's Jeff Bezos? Who's Satya Nadala? These are manufacturers today. The top companies in the world, including Google, that just hit a trillion dollars in value yesterday, they manufacture things too. And I think, you know, this is starting to shift where the average person, you know, at some level I could simply see, say Tesla is just like any other car company. They bend steel for a living. At another level, this is really an amazing company that's redefining what an automobile and an automobile experience really is. I think these are starting to capture the imagination of the general populace. But you know what? If I was a young person today, I might be looking at that and thinking, hey, I want to go to work at Tesla. Right. That might be an aspiration for me in a very different way. So long winded way of saying I think we may be seeing, you know, if 2020 we look back as the year that 
industry 4.0 mainstreamed, I think we can look back at this year and suggest that manufacturing in the United States took center stage and as a result became a redefined industry, understanding what it really is, not what it used to be. So it's, it's funny that you say that, Tony, because I have come to a very similar conclusion, particularly in discussions with people and when I see articles that say, you know, is manufacturing relevant? And it only takes a second to say, well, what are you sitting on, standing on, leaning against? Uh, <laughs> it was all manufactured. But if you look at R&D, all of the cool stuff in R&D is coming out of manufacturing. Absolutely. What a great place well, to be for, for young and, creative and Tim, minds. Tim, imagine a picture, right? If you were to visualize for your listeners, right? So imagine a picture if there was no U.S. manufacturing industry. It would be a picture of a cornfield, right? Yeah. We'd go back to the <laughs> agrarian economy. I mean, come on, right? I, but, right. but look, I understand how these misperceptions got put in place, right? You know, manufacturing has been used a bit as a political football through the years, and we understand that and don't need to get caught up in it. But I really think just through these examples where people, you know, I think the maker movement and other things are a reflection of this. I think the, the focus on STEM and other things are a reflection of this. I think there's a resurgence or a renaissance or some sort of shift here where this idea of, of making things and being proud of making things and that sense of a vocation around that, I really believe we're going to look back and realize we were fortunate enough to fortunate enough, pardon me, to be around when that kind of that that's, that pride of that came back, and I think the sense of celebrating that came back. Well, being that you brought up agriculture, last year seven percent of the farmers went out of business, and yesterday they came out with the number that this year, uh, 2019, fifteen percent of farmers went out of business. So that's a good place to get uh, uh, new talent and train them to become manufacturing oriented. And that's, that's one of the solutions that I see is that there's a migration in the population. Uh, for example, the state of Washington, I think it was last week, they commuted 11,000 prisoners and let them go. They were all uh, minor drug-related uh, imprisonments. So there's 11,000 people there. Uh, you, you have the, the vets getting out of the service uh, if we don't wind up in another war uh, that are being transitioned into you know, normal civilian life again. And hiring a vet is really great because they're, they're trained, they're disciplined, and they show up. So there's lots of solutions uh, that I don't think are really being explored uh, properly when it comes to the number of people that are available to be in that manufacturing uh, migration that you were talking about. Lou, I, I, I really applaud your advocacy around this, and I, I think you have been one of the few people shining a light on this, and, and I think we need to continue to do it, right? So. And I hope I don't, you know, inadvertently create a controversy or offend any of your listeners. But to see the number of people that are now coming out of prison for 
what we can now view through the historic lens is remarkably minor drug offenses around marijuana. And these folks coming out with very little skills and, you know, very little job in the the way of job prospects, training programs to help some of these folks. And and by the way, we're not talking four-year degree programs. We're talking about programs that would would put them in great jobs for well-paying jobs for, you know, fun, vibrant, high-tech jobs that would be great opportunities for the folks that have served our country. The fact that we're not, you know, have, you know, systematizing or orchestrating a system. And and I know there are a lot of programs out there that do help these folks, but I I agree with you, Lou. I think these are areas of, it's more than saying it's untapped talent. We're not, we're not, um, we're we're not lining up where there's need. These are people that need jobs, right? It's not like we're just saying, Hey, where do we, where do we find talent? You know, we're, we're, we're bringing two two you know where where need meets you know re- requirements if you will so yeah i, I i'm uh, i wish i had more of a simple way to to put into action your ideas there but i think perhaps talking about it in programs like this and other arenas will will help us you know continue to advocate for those kinds of things because i i think there's a lot of opportunity there well, I, taking, I, I, it, yeah. taking it Taking it just one step further, I'm sorry, Tim, taking it one step further, there's a huge segment of population, and that's called immigration. And at one time, that's how this country got to be as as great as it is, and what started the Industrial Revolution way back in the 1900s. My folks both came from uh, Europe. Uh, Tim, uh, I don't know, Ireland or something like that? Ireland. Ireland. And... uh, that's that's huge, and now we're we're destroying that, and we've been destroying that now for you know fifty years, and no one's fixing it. Yeah, well, Lou, it's an interesting thing. I'll I'll throw my my hat into the ring on that as well. My great grandfather, uh, Elmer uh, Borden Uphoff, came over from Germany, and he was the youngest vice president of manufacture at a company that's still in existence called Baker Manufacturing in Wisconsin. And uh, he learned his skills in Germany and came over to this country. And, and uh, I, I'm with you on that. I think these are these are complex, thorny issues and, uh, you know, certainly not easy to sort through. But I think also, you know, as we think through the broader dynamics of how American manufacturing plays on the global stage, I think immigration plays a role in there and certainly does, you know, what is trade today and how does global trade work and at what level does advocating for for you know trade concessions or trade wars help or hurt and and so i think those two issues are boy front of mind with many of us speaking about trade the phase one trade war document was signed on the 15th i haven't heard a word in mainstream media about what what that was. What did they sign besides a piece of paper? They're um, not talking think, about it. Yeah, Lou, it's interesting. I think there's a couple of components there, and I'll be a little flat-footed. There were some actual technical dynamics that were agreed to here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, know there, I know there's a couple hundred billion dollars worth of goods that China agreed to buy. Um, I, I believe there's some components, although not completely spelled out, where there's, at least on on paper, some um, 
T's and C's agreed to around uh, technical uh, rights violations. So one of the big challenges is I think many people, most of your listeners would know, is a, a subplot of the trade negotiations with China has really been around um, the, uh, what, what many people believe to be the illegal stealing of technology and, and IP. And so there's, there's apparently some things in there that at least on paper would help with that. But, but I think there's a, 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 you know, a, a couple of dynamics to this. To your point of no one's talking about it, I think, unfortunately, the way this trade negotiation has been played out in the press and across you know, uh, social media is I think what happens to the average person is deal fatigue sets in. Yeah. You know, it's just like, I, 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 don't, know, I don't know what's going on. You know, because I hear that a lot from our customers that I'll ask them about it. And they'll just kind of laugh and shake their head. And it's like, and by the way, people from both sides of the aisle, I'm not making a political statement here. Absolutely not. But I think people are just kind of like, I don't know what the hell's going on. I hear so much. So I think kind of to your point, I think the mainstream press is kind of like not sure what to make of it anymore. Well, that's true. But the point is, for example, in the trade uh, phase one, uh, China agreed to buy $200 billion worth of agriculture from us. Meanwhile, in the last two years, if you took the 7% and 15%, we've lost 22% of that market. They went out of business. So where's the $200 billion going? What are they going to buy? Yeah, I I think you're raising some really, really good points. We've been monitoring you know, just, just kind of looking at the demand trends that we see. And as, as you both know well, we can see all kinds of movement around, you know, right, you know we've 72,000 categories, for gosh sake. So there's all kinds of data we can pull out. Um, if you look at the, the products, either raw materials or finished products that were most affected by the tariffs, we can see a significant lift in sourcing around those products for North American suppliers. Not surprising, right? Um, right. What... When you talk anecdotally with providers in those areas, so let me get let me be specific. If you talk to steel companies, lumber companies, rubber companies, uh, PCB board uh, manufacturers, what they'll tell you is they've seen a significant lift in demand coming from North American companies or global companies, not China, global companies looking to source in North America. What some of them will tell you, not all, some will tell you privately is, you know, while the the increase in uh, demand is fantastic and we appreciate it, it's not enough to outrun the loss of a country the size of China for us. You know what I'm saying? In other words, hey, you know, it's great that we're seeing an increase. Now, that's not a universal statement. That's more of a selective statement. But long way of saying, I I think as we work through these things, most of the companies that we talk to uh, uh, in our customers, I think, feel that their business perhaps hit some pauses, hit some kind of confusion points. But I think they feel, by and large, that the, the trade wars, quote unquote, haven't negatively affected their businesses to this stage. Whether they positively affected it or not, I think remains to be seen. I think it's on the, the, the long haul, which will tell us the, the story on that. Uh, the yeah. fact that the uh, Institute of Supply Management uh, uh, PMI number is now four months in a row below 50 is, um, 
even though they would make they might make for an argument that it's not terrible. Uh, four months in a row is really setting a trend uh, that I, as uh, a metals producer and supplier, doesn't make me happy. Uh, yep. But and the trend uh, going into the first quarter of 2020 uh, might change somewhere soon. But uh, the first quarter of the year is usually a softer period of time. So uh, we're just going to have to see how this all plays out in the uh, near near to midterm. Yeah, by the way, Lou, and not to, not to segue into it, but uh, it might be interesting in a follow-up conversation with you. We have um, really advanced our data analytics capabilities over the last year, and we've added a VP of data science, and we've got a data science team. And one of the things that they were looking at is they were taking over the last two years, they were looking at our demand data, overlaying the S&P 500, and then overlaying the PMI survey. Right. And guess which one had a direct correlation of predicting the trajectory of the S&P 500? PMI survey probably did. It, It wasn't the PMI survey. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it was interesting. And again, I'm not here to, to, to give an endorsement or lack thereof of the PMI survey, but I, you know, I, I hear you. I think anytime something that's, that has been a trusted source suggests that, hey, the market is not as robust as we believed it to be or would like it to be, I think it's worth looking at and reacting to. And I want to be clear what I'm saying. At the same point in time, I worry about our industry that we rely on a survey of 300 procurement professionals and attempt to uplift it to a $2.4 trillion marketplace, which I think is dangerous for us, for us to do. I'll, I'll get off my soapbox on that one, but <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think it's a, you know, I, that's an interesting dynamic. It doesn't change your core point, which is, hey, we do have people in the, in the ecosystem, if you will, or the supply chain that are, you know, if not hitting the pause button, they want to make sure, hey, are, you know, are we seeing positive signals, not only just in the economy, but I think when you, when you back into the conversation around the trade wars and discussions, I do think it gives people a pause. So, Tony, your data that you are now developing, are, is that going to be shared with the industry in a either digital or written document form on any you know, regular basis, like monthly? Tim, thanks for asking. Yeah, so um, we're, we're about to make some announcements in and around the data and, and what we do there. So you're about to hear us officially announce something called Thomas Industrial Data, which is a division of ours that we've been developing our data capabilities and, and skills um, we're, we're also going to be announcing a relationship with, a, with some, some folks that are in that data business in, in different ways than, than we are. Uh, and and uh, we brought in a very talented uh, VP of data science. So we'll be making some announcements around there in the, in the next couple of weeks. We have been sharing, Tim, as you know, a weekly um, video that just simply looks at the top 10 products and services that are in demand on the platform. We call this the Thomas Industrial Index. In all candor, it's not really an index. It's just the top 10 products. We've now got 123 episodes of that program. And uh, if I can also let your listeners know, if you do see the Thomas uh, Industrial Index 
the coaching on how to behave on camera is kudos to Lou and Tim here because they give me advice on how to use my hands and not wave too much <laughs> on camera. But but I digress. But I digress. Anyways, Tim, all kidding aside, that that is one way we've been kind of socializing the data, if that makes sense. So we think, and, and no announcements here, but we think a few things that we can do going into the future. There's a lot of demand for the market trend. So it's anonymized, but market trend data out there. And there's a business opportunity for us there, and we're going we're gonna to go and step into that business. But we also think that we'd like to provide companies the ability to access our data and data sets in ways that opens up opportunities for people in the marketplace. And we've got some ideas on that that don't always have to be capitalist ideas, that we may just want to share some of this data in ways that could be helpful for companies. And so we're, we're carefully thinking through how we best do that. We've also started some discussions with a couple of um, major academic institutions. So we've developed a, a close relationship with Carnegie Mellon University. Um, we've got an emerging relationship with Penn State. Um, we've got some others where um, we, we talk, you know, at, at early stages of, you know, where could our data help an industry in terms of either, you know, academic analysis or research or other things. Uh, gee, I didn't hear the name Manufacturing Talk Radio mentioned in that group of fine institutions. <laughs> well, so we're, we, so we're we, going to have to have a conversation. All, we always share our data with you. That, that goes without saying, but let me say it expressly. So what we would, you know, a thousand ideas. I'm, I'm looking at Lou here, and we have a thousand ideas we know are hitting each other's brains at this moment about how can we work with Thomas in a more uh, in a tighter partnership to be a, um, a, a helpful media outlet for all of this Thomas stuff. And hey, I think we'd Lou love, and you, we'd love it. Yeah, we would love that, Tim, because I think, you know, look, as I said before, not not to sound falsely altruistic about this, but, you know, clearly, you know, it, there's a commercial uh, operation around our data and it's core to the user experience and the advertiser experience. There's also a revenue stream there for us. But I think there's a broader opportunity for us to 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 help our industry and raise our visibility as we do so. So we should definitely have conversations around that. Well, we might do it tonight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. we, we, we do have that opportunity, don't we? There, there we go. There we go. Okay. Um, well, it, it well, sounds we, really, it really sounds intriguing what's going to be coming down the, down the pike. And interestingly enough, and I'm really proud of myself that we didn't talk any real politics. Um, I'm trying to behave myself. Um, <laughs> Tim Tim can't handle it when I talk politics, so I, I don't talk <laughs> politics around him anymore. But it's going to be an interesting year. Uh, there's there's all kinds of things going on, uh, and and maybe mainstream media will pick up on manufacturing, realizing that it's uh, on the supply chain upstream and downstream. It does represent a third of our economy which is uh, significant in anyone's numbers Lou, Lou I think it, it, it will be I'm optimistic for it and, and if I could in, indulge the two of you for just one other uh, comment and, and pardon the, the brief commercial the other thing I should not forget to mention is that in the next couple of months uh, users of ThomasNet will see version 5.0 of ThomasNet.com and 
it is a significant uplift in all of the features for our users. Picture a user as a buyer, engineer, procurement professional, or, or MRO. But we're also adding a massive amount of feature sets for suppliers in there. It's a two-sided marketplace, as you both know. And so sure. we're adding a, a, an enormous amount of features so that both sides of the marketplace can be on and use and leverage the power of the platform at the same time. Uh, we're also going to be introducing badging. Uh, so you'll see something called Thomas Registered and Thomas Verified uh, on, uh, on the platform. And uh, so I, I told you I was going to bring Thomas Register back. Yeah, uh, is it going to be green? Uh, <laughs> just wait. Just wait. Uh, you'll get a chance to see it, my friend. But if, in if any it, event, if we'll... it comes back green, I'm going to take uh, full credit for it. <laughs> powered, powered by Lou Weiss, uh, right? Right, uh, right. Uh, but in any event, hey, I pardon the commercial, but you, as you can tell by the, the enthusiasm of my voice, we're, we're really excited uh, about some of the cool new things that we're doing. And uh, we got a lot going on, and it's always great to to catch up with the two of you and get a chance to compare notes on what we see happening in the industry. Well, we're going to have to talk with you down the road about what Thomas is doing and what these new features are, and uh, we'll certainly have you back on the show and uh, talk about it and give you a, a, a not necessarily a bigger platform because it's hard to beat 1.6 million a month. But that being said. We still have a lot of manufacturers listening to our show, and we surely welcome that you're here. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Lou. Thank you, Tim. Always great to talk to you. Thanks. Appreciate, appreciate you being with us. And that, uh, we've been talking with Tony Epoff, who's the president and CEO of Thomas, about all of the things that are happening in manufacturing for 2020. And stay tuned, because there's obviously more to come, Lou. I gathered that. Looking forward to it. Looking yes, indeed. So, so if you're going to the top, they're still at the top of the heap in terms yes. of what they do. That's right, no doubt. So if you're going to check us out, we are at mfgtalkradio.com. And thank you for listening to this episode, which was a unique one of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>